So we start recording. If you do not wish to be recorded, please don't ask any questions. You could always email us, info at ltccc.org, Larry Thomas, Carol, 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 .org. If you have any questions that you don't want to have recorded or otherwise, we're always interested in hearing from you and, and helping in any way we can. But I want to get started now. So today's program is on nursing home care and quality of life standards. And we've talked a lot about these issues for those of you, those of you, excuse me, who joined us over the last couple of years. Uh, what I wanted to do today is specifically talk about how we can kind of connect the law and the regulatory standards to the experience of our residents. Uh, as always, I want to start off first for those of you who haven't joined us before. The, uh, my organization, the Long-Term Care Community Coalition, we are a nonprofit organization. We are entirely dedicated to improving care and quality of life for residents in nursing homes and assisted living. Uh, so although we do try to work with the nursing home and assisted living providers, we are entirely dedicated to representing consumers and consumer interests, residents and their families. We do policy analysis and systemic advocacy, both in New York State and nationally. We also do programs such as this to educate consumers, you know, residents, their families, long-term care ombudsmen, and other advocates and stakeholders. And I'm very proud to say we're home of the local long-term care ombudsman program for the Hudson Valley in New York. And I've been with the coalition since 2002 and the executive director since 2005, so about 17 years now. What are, we going to, what are we going to be talking about today? I'm going to give a brief background, as I generally do, uh, with an overview of the nursing home system and talk a little bit about the nursing home reform law from 1987. It's been in place now for about 40 years. And then the focus today will be on care and quality of life standards, but specifically as I mentioned before, how does the law connect to the standards for our residents? And then talk about some tips for resident-centered advocacy. Uh, and as I mentioned at the start, you know, we talk a lot as advocates, uh, as researchers, of course, uh, et cetera, and of course, you know, with families and with the ombudsman about, about the standards. And we talk about how those, we talk about problems, we talk about you know, good care and bad care, sometimes neglect and sometimes abuse. And I really have been thinking a lot about how do we make the connection between those regulatory standards and how you can use them. And, and those of you who have attended our prior programs know we do a lot of fact sheets that can help you do that. But I really thought it would be useful to show that connection as clearly as possible and demonstrate it with a couple of examples so that it would give you and the people that you work with a, a hopefully a better idea of how we can use those tools. And these are things that even though I do this every day, and as I said, as I said before, I've been at the coalition for 17 years, they are things that I'm constantly thinking about. So I hope that they'll be useful to you as well. So a little bit about the nursing home system. And again, I apologize to those of you who are with us um, you know, for all of our programs because we, we generally start off with this. But the nursing home system, in a nutshell, is that the vast majority, almost every nursing home in the country, with a few exceptions, and almost every nursing home in our state of New York, with a few exceptions, 
participate in Medicaid and or Medicare. And participate is essentially a gov government word, and it means that they take Medicaid and or Medicare funds in some amount, $10 to $10 million. It doesn't matter. If you take any money, you are said to be participating. In order to participate as a facility, you agree to meet or exceed all of the minimum standards that are provided for in federal law. Now, states can have additional protections or additional standards, but no state can have less protections or standards. Everything that I always talk about is based in the federal law and the federal regulations, so applies to every nursing home resident in the country who's in a licensed facility. Uh, some examples of how a state can differ from the feds is that a, the federal requirement is that a nursing home have an RN on staff eight hours a day, seven days a week. Some states, including our state here in New York, they require an RN 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So that's an additional protection, but no state can say, oh, actually, we only, um, it's okay for our nursing homes to only have an RN three days a week or five days a week. That is not possible and that is not acceptable. Uh, the other important point I think here is that the federal protections that we talk about, they're for every single resident in the facility, no matter who pays for his or her care, Medicare, Medicaid, private pay, insurance, et cetera, it does not matter. The protections go to everyone. And the big distinction here generally is for people who are on Medicare who might be there for rehab um, or, or private pay, and those who are on Medicaid, for which nursing homes get less money, it doesn't matter. Um, the, it doesn't matter as far as what the nursing home is supposed to be providing in terms of care, quality of care, staffing, dignity, etc. So a little bit about the reform law. The, the nursing home reform law, also known as OBRA 87, it requires that every nursing home resident, as I said, no matter who pays for his or her care, is provided the care and quality of life services sufficient to attain and maintain his or her highest practicable physical, emotional, and psychosocial well-being. And I know that's kind of, uh, I, I think it's a lot to, to think about. It's not highest practical. It's not what the facility says, oh, we're going to, uh, we're going to buy enough food for 100 meals and we're going to have two staff and I have 120 beds, I'm going to bring in 120 people and see how things go. Uh, it's not what's highest practical for me as a nursing home based upon how much money I want to make, et cetera. It's highest practicable based upon the individual. And that's what we're going to get at over and over and over again, is that the nursing home reform law is really special. And the regulations, the standards that we talk about, are really special in that it focuses on the individual. Uh, it focuses on how can we make sure that he or she is able to attain his or her highest practicable, what he or she is capable of doing and of maintaining. And it's not just clinical care, it's emotional and psychosocial well-being as well. So as I was saying, the focus is on the resident, on the individual, and the focus of all these regulations is on resident-centered care, and we see that over and over and over again. 
And the reason for this, the reason why the reform law came about in 1987 is because there were significant problems, problems, excuse me, in nursing homes at the time. And I, um, I remember going to visit my great grandmother in a nursing home and it smelled bad. Um, it was, she was strapped into a wheelchair. It was a really terrible place. And we still have obviously a lot of problems and a lot of challenges in nursing homes but they're a lot better than they were in the late 70s and early 80s, and that's really a, ref uh, a result of the reform law. Uh, importantly, this is what we're really going to talk about on the second bullet here, is that the law lays out very specific resident rights, and as I said before, going from quality of care, quality of clinical care, to also maximizing choice, resident dignity, and autonomy. Just as a reminder, I, um, everyone is muted, but you can type in your questions in the box that should be on the upper right-hand side of your screen, or I'll open it up at the end for Q&A as well. So how does the reform law connect to your resident's experience? So as I said before, every nursing home that is licensed under Medicare or Medicaid that participates, as they say, in Medicare or Medicaid, agrees to meet or exceed the standards in the reform law. These standards, again, must be met for every single resident, no matter who pays for his or her care. I never, ever want to hear about it. It's never acceptable to say, oh, your resident is here for long-term care. Um, the other services we provide are for rehab. No. Um, federal law prohibits that. The reform law is implemented through regulatory requirements, and those requirements, the regulations, are known as the requirements for participation. They're actually, the title is requirements. And then in addition to the requirements, CMS issues guidance for surveyors, which are or the inspectors, for the public and for nursing homes to, and those, those guide, the guidance, excuse me, explains what the expectations are in respect to each of the regulatory requirements. So I know it sounds complicated, but it really is not as complicated as it sounds. So you see here, we have the federal nursing home reform law. That's, that's the highest practicable for based upon what the resident needs, et cetera. Um, and then underneath that, you have the regulatory requirements, and those lay out specific standards, such as for staffing, such as, like I mentioned before, for RNs, for food services, for dementia care. And then underneath that, you have the guidance, and the guidance provides details on what we expect to see for each one of those requirements. So it's really a, essentially a three-tiered system. You have the law, you have the requirements which say, which say, okay, this is the individual expectations, and then you have guidance, and the guidance essentially holds, holds the hands of the nursing home. It says, okay, this is what we expect you to do. This is what we expect to see. Why do we have this system? Why are there these three tiers? Because when someone takes in a nursing home resident, it is expected that they are going to provide good care. And as I mentioned, you know, over the years from the 70s and 80s, then again, even through till now, those standards quite often are not met. Too many of our residents are, suffer from neglect or receive substandard care. So over the years, we've, we've developed this system to address that, to say, okay, if you have someone with dementia, this is what we expect to see in terms of care for them. And we'll talk about that a little bit more with some specifics. So what I'm going to do now in the following slides is 
I'm going to highlight a few of those regulatory standards and then discuss how the standards connect to what you're seeing with your residents and what, what you can do with the knowledge of the regulatory standards to advocate for your residents, whether it be in a facility on an individual basis, facility-wide, or in your community. And we'll talk about some of the resources. Some of you, I'm sure, who have attended our programs before have seen these resources before. Um, I really appreciate the feedback that we get for them, and we're always looking to improve. So, again, please feel free to shoot us an email, info at ltccc.org, if you have any comments. And also, we're going to talk about a few of the standards today. We're obviously not going to talk about all of them, but I really would appreciate your feedback, and you can let me know if there are topics that you are particularly concerned about that you would like us to cover in future programs and future materials. So, again, that's info at ltccc.org. Excuse me. Okay. So the first thing I wanted to talk about today were are the regulatory standards around care and services that must meet residents' medical, nursing, mental, and psychosocial needs. Why did I want to talk about it? Well, there was a, an article in the New York Times, I cut a picture of it here that you can see, uh, just over the weekend that found, um, that actually covers a, a uh, study that came out, pardon me, uh, last week or the week before, Costly rehab for the dying is on the rise at nursing homes, the study says. Now, this study was, was focused on New York State, but the, um, the, the investigators felt that, this, uh, that the results were generalizable across the country. And basically what they found was that at the very end of life, often even in the last week of a person's life, residents in nursing homes were getting significantly high levels of rehabilitation services. Why? Um, rehabilitation services are a, frankly, major profit area for nursing homes. They're a way to bring in a lot of money. So the um, what we're seeing is that nursing homes are, you know, to, not all of them, of course, but many nursing homes are amping up expensive rehab services at the end of life. The problem is, of course, that someone at the very end of their life does not need rehab they need comfort care. They may be in hospice, in which case they should be receiving hospice services, which is for end of life, or um, they should be receiving, at the very minimum, palliative care, which is essentially comfort care. And, and every resident should receive that. Every individual should receive that, no matter where he or she lives. We should always be receiving care that um, makes us as comfortable as possible. But if, you know, especially at the end of life, it was very clear here from the study's findings that too many people were getting services that they didn't need and that may be causing them um, pain or discomfort, et cetera, when that was really the last thing that should be happening in the last days of their lives. So a little bit about the regulatory standards. So, you know, again, you know, I was thinking, you know, what can we talk about? What, can we, what do we do when we are faced with a situation? Well, there is a, a very robust law, as I talked about, and a number of standards that get to this and get to other issues. So here I copied some of the information from the federal government itself. Care and services must be resident-centered. They must be focused on the resident as an individual. And, and this is from the guidance, the federal guidance, excuse me, based on his or her medical, 
nursing, and mental and psychosocial needs based on the resident's goals and desired outcomes, based on a comprehensive resident assessment that includes the resident's customary routine, his or her cognitive patterns, his or her mood, his or her ability to and methods of communication, and his or her physical, dental, and nutritional status. So let's step back for a second. Again, you know, we had the, the um, let's go back up. So we had this issue here that the researchers found is that a lot of people are getting services that they don't need, that they don't want, that is not helpful to them, that actually may be harming them. Here we come to the regulation, and the regulation or the, you know, the, the guidance for the regulation says, again, this comes, and you can see the language from the reform law that we spoke about before, that the care and services have to be resident-centered. A nursing home is not a factory where you're just putting out, putting out, putting out um, shoes or socks or, or baseballs or whatever. Is that you are supposed to be focusing on the resident. And we, as I said earlier, we see that in every place in the law and the regulations. So the, again, I just want to go through it. It has to be based upon his or her medical, nursing, mental, and psychosocial needs. That all reflects the things we talked about in the reform law before. His or her goals and desired outcomes. So if you are in the last days of your life, um, and that's pretty clear from your medical diagnosis and where you've been, your trajectory, so to speak, over, say, the last months, et cetera, you don't need rehab. Um, you want to be comfortable. Uh, you want to be able to, you know, maybe communicate with your family or pray or think about things, you know, look out the window, et cetera. You do not need, you know, again, just getting back to the subject of that research, uh, you don't need these extensive and intensive services. And then lastly, and we'll talk about this more, is that it's all based upon the resident assessment. And I, uh, we've received some really great feedback over the past couple of years in terms of um, our materials on resident assessment and care planning. And I'm going to talk about them next, but it gets to the point of, you know, how do we focus this on the resident? Okay, so it's great that those, you know, regulations are there. It's great that the standard is there. How do we make it happen? So I want to repeat this one more time, that the care plan must be based on the assessment. In other words, it must come from the resident's needs and abilities, not the services or staffing levels which the nursing home decides to provide based on its financial or other priorities. And just, you know, I want to be clear, I think that there are nursing homes that are doing a great job and really get this and are really thinking about what their residents need, are doing care planning in a way that is um, appropriate. But for too many of us, uh, and I've been a family member on this end as well, uh, they're not. And we're not really brought in. We're not really helped to understand what is going on and what the uh, best services are and help to understand that we can direct Either our residents or we as people representing our residents can direct what that care should be. So this is the fact sheet that we developed on resident assessment and care planning. And this is on our website, so we'd be happy if you can't find it. And it should be readily available, but let us know. We have a learning center on the website, nursinghome411.org, and we have fact sheets there, and you can see this and other fact sheets, you can download and you can use them in any way that you like. 
I'm really thrilled to hear people using them with their family councils and resident councils and ombudsmen giving them out, et cetera. So just a couple of ideas. But this, again, we, you know, we take this from the federal law, so it's not me making this up. It's not my wishful thinking. This is, again, getting back to what the nursing home reform law requires and what every nursing home agrees to provide. And the point of these fact sheets is to give you some of the tools to advocate for this effectively, you know, in your nursing homes and your communities. So just looking on the left-hand side, um, the consumer fact sheet, resident assessment and care planning, every one of the fact sheets briefly describes, you know, what it is we're talking about. So if you have an issue, if you if you have a care plan meeting go, coming up or, or this becomes an issue that you're talking about in your family council that um, you feel that the care planning meetings are not being called at a time where families can attend or that they go too quickly, et cetera, is that you can download these materials, print them out, et cetera, and, uh, or copy them onto a, an iPad and bring them in and look at them and see here we have on the left-hand side resident assessment for every, that's the requirement, for every regulatory requirement, we put the 42 CFR section. That's the section of the federal code. You don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to remember this stuff. It's just for you to know that it's there. Again, that it's not me making it up. It actually exists in the federal regulation. And then we, we put down here, as you can see, I put in the green box. You can use this as a checklist to identify what is important to you when you have a resident assessment. And by you, if you're a family member, of course, and if your resident um, wants you to help him or her or cannot speak for, for himself or herself, you can use this um, yourself. What are some of the things that are important to the resident? What are some of the things that you want to be focused on? Now, um, that study found that a lot of people are getting care that is inappropriate, too much care uh, because of the rehab. But what we most often hear about is people not getting enough care. Uh, that they're not getting the services that they need or that the services are not appropriate. And by services, I mean not only care services, but also monitoring, especially on nights and on weekends. Uh, I mean appropriate activities, etc. So you can use this to, as a tool when you have those uh, assessment and when you have a care planning, which is the second page. So on the resident assessment, I won't go through the whole list, but it talks about, again, we hear this over and over, customary routine, cognitive patterns. What is your resident? Does she like to get up early? Does he like to take a bath or does he like to take a shower? What are their activity pursuits? What kind of medications are they on? What is going on with their mood or their psychosocial well-being? Are they someone who likes to be around other people and might want to participate in a current events or a Bible study, or is it someone who prefers to be quiet and might want to uh, watch TV, uh, might want to have some quiet time uh, in a garden, etc. Those things should all be part of the resident assessment. And again, this is why the law I think is so powerful. Is that it says it right here. And so you can use this to advocate in your nursing home with your caregivers. And then on the right-hand side is regards the person-centered care plan. It's that the care plan has to come from the assessment. So they, they go hand in hand. And then on the right-hand side, this is, again, is a tool that we hope that you can use, some basic considerations to keep in mind. 
the facility must make an assessment of the resident's capacity, needs, and preferences. Again, that is the federal requirement, not my choice, not my saying, but the federal requirement. The assessment must include a wide range of residents' needs and abilities. The facility is expected to primarily rely on direct observation and communication with the resident in order to assess his or her functional capacity. So again, it gets back to what I said before, is that a nursing home is not a factory. A nursing home is not producing care. A nursing home is providing care in response to observing, talking to family, talking to the resident, and seeing what it is that the resident needs, what is it that the resident prefers, et cetera. Then the second fact sheet that I wanted to include here, so we, as you see, we have a number of them. This one, it goes, includes rehab and also physician and dental services. So I'm going to move over to the upper right-hand side, which talks about specialized rehabilitative services. This is part of the federal regulations, again, 42 CFR. And then everything you see here in italics, that comes from the guidance that I spoke about before. So the federal Regulation says that people are entitled to receive specialized rehabilitative services. Below that, it says they're entitled to receive dental services. On the left-hand side, it talks about the choice of attending physician, frequency of physician visits, requirements for physician services. So that's the basic requirement. And then in italics below for each one, we've included excerpts that we thought were important from the actual federal guidance. So that says, okay, um, looking again at specialized rehabilitative services, okay, people should be getting rehabilitative services, but how? So let's look at the guidance. The guidance says, um, if specialized rehabilitative services are required in the resident's comprehensive care plan, again, getting back to that care plan, the facility must one, provide the required services or obtain the required services from an outside resource. And then it says the second bullet here, which I put in bold, excuse me, the intent of this regulation is to ensure that every resident receives specialized rehabilitative services as determined by their comprehensive plan of care to assist them to attain, maintain, or restore their highest practicable level of physical, mental, functional, and psychosocial being, again, those come up time and time again about what they want. Uh, so I think you know, these are, again, tools that you can use. And I won't get into all the others because we have a lot to talk about today. But you can see if you have an issue with choosing a physician, just very quickly, this is the second bullet on the left-hand side page. One, and a lot of people you know, are told otherwise, but in fact, a resident has the right to choose his or her attending physician. This can be, and I know it has been, a very challenging issue for residents and their families. Now, the facility ha cannot put up barriers to the resident's physician coming in, but at the same time, the physician has to be willing to come into the nursing home. So that's an issue that we have been working on, we and others have been working on, with um, CMS, which is the federal agency, for many years now, and it, but it was made very clear in the regulations, these new regulations that came out in 2016, resident always had the right to choose an attending physician, but what CMS did with this guidance is say, okay, 
we're going to spell it out for you because it may maybe it wasn't clear enough because too many people did not have access to the position that they wanted. So it gives you some instruction. It gives you some details to help you with your advocacy. The last fact sheet that I wanted to talk about in regard to you know the rehabilitation services and other services is informed consent. And this comes up over and over again. So very quickly on the left-hand side, we actually put a quote from a guide to informed consent because I thought it was pretty good. Informed consent essentially is an ethical concept that every patient should understand and agree to the potential consequences of their care, period. So what does that mean? And here we have again, as you can see in, in the purple headlines, uh, each section of the federal regulation. One, the resident has the right to be informed of and participate in his or her treatment plan. Resident has the right to participate in development and implementation of the care plan. And then lastly on the right-hand side, number three, the facility must inform the resident of the right to participate and support the resident in this right. So I included, as you can see in the italics again, that, that lets you know that it's something that we took directly from the federal guidance explaining, okay, how do I get that right? So what does that mean? Let's look at the first one, right to be informed of and participate in a treatment plan. And this, again, I don't want to get too complicated, but it goes back to the initial issue we spoke about of that study that found that people were getting rehabilitative services that they did not need and, in fact, may have been harmful to them or uh, unpleasant to them at the very end of their life. Here it says, the resident has the right to be informed of and participate in his or her treatment, including, one, the right to be fully informed in language that he or she can understand of his or her total health status, including, but not limited to, his or her medical condition. Two, the right to be informed in advance of the care to be furnished and the type of caregiver or professional that will furnish it. Three, the right to be informed in advance by the physician or other practitioner or professional of the risks and benefits of the proposed care, of treatment and treatment alternatives or treatment options, and to choose the alternative or option he or she prefers. And it, I think it's so important. It gets to um, so often in nursing home, we enter a nursing home and we feel like we don't have rights as citizens anymore. We don't have rights to to make to make decisions for ourselves. We don't have rights to make even bad decisions for ourselves uh, or decisions that the facility may think are bad. But we have the right to make that decision. We don't lose those rights as residents. And if you are representing a resident as a family member or a designee, then you take the resident's place. And it is up to you to make the choice of what you think the resident would want or what you think is best for the resident as long as you're acting in the resident's best interest. So that gets to the people who are getting too much therapy is that all this time the facility should have been talking about any services that they are thinking about giving these the pluses and minuses and giving the resident or the resident's family members the option to make a choice. And clearly, you know, it seems to me pretty clear that in those situations that the researchers found that that, that wasn't happening. 
And lastly, that goes both ways. It goes to both receiving services that are um, not necessary, as that study found, but it also uh, goes to having access to services that are necessary or are beneficial. Because again, it goes, you know, we have all these different steps. We have the assessment that gets at all those different needs, desires, goals, et cetera, of the resident. And we have the care planning that is based upon that. And then we have informed consent. So when there is a treatment that comes forward, it has to be based upon the care plan. And you have the right to consent to it or to not. And you have the right to make your own choices because as a nursing home resident, you are still an adult. You're still a resident or a citizen of the United States. And you have a right to make those choices, even if the nursing home doesn't think that those are necessarily good choices or choices that they would prefer. You have the right to make those choices. And these tools, I think, can be very helpful. So what can you do? If you have a concern or a question, you can visit, again, the Learning Center of our website, nursinghome411.org. We have fact sheets on a range of issues as well as some issue alerts. So the fact sheets are just as you saw here, basically a two-pager that you can, you can print out or, or download or whatever, uh, take notes from, and it tells you a little bit about what the standard is and what you can look for, how you can advocate. And then the issue alert for some of the issues that we thought uh, people might want to know more about, we have written up you know, five or six-page issue alerts, for instance, on pressure ulcers and on transfer and discharge rights. And we just have a new one we did on resident and family councils that can help you to get a little more background if you're interested. We also have a primer on essential nursing home quality standards. So I think all of the standards that we have in the fact sheets, they are all and more of them are reflected in the primer. What we did a couple of years ago is we went through the nursing home law in, in its entirety and we picked out, I should say the regulations, excuse me, because the regulations really have the details. We picked out all the regulations, pretty much all of them that we thought were most essential for resident-centered advocacy, for ombudsmen, for families, for residents, of course, and for other advocates. And so we put together details in that. The primer is really nice because as a PDF file, you can download it and you can easily search it. The table of contents has the listing of all the different subjects that are covered. So you can easily find an issue that is of interest to you. And you'll also pretty much, I think, almost always find a fact sheet on that issue as well on our website. But it helps to give you some information, and I've been really glad to hear that Ombudsman and others are using the Primer to, uh, as a resource for knowing about some residents' rights and care issues, et cetera. Second bullet down, how to use this knowledge and how to use these resources. So in the facility, you could speak to staff. You could speak to the administration. You have, If you have the fact sheet in front of you, it tells you what your rights are, very simply. How can the staff, how can the administration, how can they help you achieve those rights to which you're entitled under the federal regulations and under federal law? And then outside the facility, if the problem is not addressed in the facility, and we would always say, wherever possible, start in the facility. Start by saying, look, these are some of the things, these are my priorities in the care planning or in the assessment. How can you help me to achieve that? And those are actually not my words. They're the words of a resident who I met last year. And that's, I'm going to take that. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to steal those words because they're, because, because they're really good. How can you help me to achieve 
what I'm entitled to. Uh, and you may not want to say what I'm entitled to in so many words, but you can say, look, this is, this is what, what the rights I have concerning my care. Excuse me. How can we make this happen? How can you help me to achieve it? But as we know, that doesn't always work. There are a lot of challenges sometimes depending upon the nursing home, um, you know, depending upon their staffing, et cetera. Uh, if you're finding that you're not making headway in your nursing home, you could also use this to reach out to the long-term care ombudsman program in your community, to reach out to the Department of Health, you know, the state agency, the oversight agency, to file a complaint to your Medicaid fraud control unit. Every state except for North Dakota has a Medicaid fraud control unit, and they all have an abuse and neglect hotline. Uh, you might want to reach out to other law enforcement, or you may want to contact an elder abuse attorney. And why are the fact sheets useful there? Because it lets you know that you have the right. Um, that, you know, sometimes, you know, we know when something is wrong, but it gives you the substance. It gives you actually, you know, a way to cite, well, this is what I know should be happening because the law says it and it's not happening. So depending upon, you know, of course, what the regulation, what the standard is, what the concern is, how harmful, if it's harmful or not, then you can contact the appropriate agency. The next example I just wanted to give two general ones today is freedom from inappropriate use of antipsychotics and other drugs. This is a, an ongoing issue, and actually uh, CMS um, just they didn't publish. We we, we were able to get a um, the latest antipsychotic drugging rates for all nursing homes. So we're going to be putting that out for every single nursing home in a user friendly um, you know, searchable file for every single state. I would say, I hope in the next couple of weeks. So we'll let you all know. But what's the problem here? The problem is that, rough, is that roughly 20% today of nursing home residents are being given powerful antipsychotic drugs. Only about 2% of the entire population, old and young, will ever be diagnosed with a psychotic condition in their lifetime. And so what that means is you have one out of five residents being given antipsychotic drugs, again, only 2% will ever have a diagnosis for schizophrenia, for Tourette syndrome, or for Huntington's disease. Those are the three conditions that the federal agency, CMS, uses when it, what they call risk adjusts for appropriate, potentially, I should say, potentially appropriate use of those drugs. So uh, I know it's a lot, you know, there's a lot to think about, you don't need to think about risk adjustment, et cetera. The point here is that we have 2% of the population that may need these drugs. We have 20% of the population of nursing home residents that is getting these drugs. So we have a huge discrepancy here. Why is it a concern? Just switching down to the third bullet, the Food and Drug Administration has issued a black box warning which states, Elderly patients with dementia-related psychosis treated with atypical antipsychotic drugs are at an increased risk of death. A study after study has shown that for actually now for all antipsychotic drugs, there is a substantially increased risk of death. Also, very serious side effects, including movement disorders, falls, hip fractures, strokes, heart attack, etc., they also stupefy residents, and in fact, they can seriously exacerbate functional and cognitive limitations of people 
with dementia. So it's a really very, very serious problem. And lastly, I put this in bold, is that quite often people say, oh, we need to give your resident this medication because um, he or she is out of control, they're a danger to himself, they're a danger to others, etc. In actuality, antipsychotic drugs are not effective for more than a short period of time in addressing the so-called behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia. So what we had here over time is that, you know, the antipsychotics were there. They were actually marketed by the drug companies at, to be used for elderly people who have dementia, who may have, you know, behavioral symptoms of dementia, may be crying or spitting or, or angry or, or lashing out, etc. And so the pharmaceutical industry said, oh, you can use these safely. And then study after study came, you know, came out very clear over the years that these drugs are extremely dangerous. And not only are they extremely dangerous, but again, what I want to emphasize is that they're not effective for more than a short period of time. So what does that mean for your resident is that if your resident is a danger to him or herself, then a, you know, an immediate danger, then something to calm him or her down may be appropriate, but only for a short period of time. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when I go back to the, we have a fact sheet on this as well, as you may imagine. Uh, so the law, what does the law say? Again, informed decision-making and right to refuse. That's the informed consent. Residents have, we'll talk about drugs. Residents have the right to be informed about the risks and benefits of any medication, and they have the right to refuse any medication or treatment. In addition, residents have the right to be free from any chemical restraint. A chemical restraint is something that you, a drug that when you give someone a drug in order to sedate them, in order to calm them down, that is not appropriate. So this is, uh, as you can see, it's an italics. It comes from the guidance. Res and this is the, again, what we're talking about in terms of what should be happening. Residents who haven't used antipsychotics should not be given them unless antipsychotic drug therapy is necessary to treat a specific condition as diagnosed and documented in the clinical record, and residents who use antipsychotics must receive gradual dose reductions and behavioral interventions unless clinically contradicted in an effort to discontinue these drugs. Uh, I, I, I forgot to mention earlier, and I always try to try to mention that, again, as you can see, we're focusing a lot on the resources that we have, the fact sheets, et cetera. We'll talk about the fact sheets we have for this. Uh, the program, you know, a lot of the programs we do, you know, we talk about the law. We talk about regulations. And here, I really wanted to talk about how to connect them to your advocacy. It, these are not things that you have to memorize. These are not things that you necessarily have to write down. We've done that for you. All of our materials are free. And I welcome you to use them in any way, pull from them, or, you know, you know, pull out things that you think are useful. That's perfectly fine. What we really want you to do is, uh, with the programs is really just to, I hope, trigger some understanding, some rethinking as I'm doing myself. Um, how do we connect these regulations? How do we connect the promise of the law to the reality for our residents? So again, uh, you know, I don't want you to feel like, oh, these are a lot of things I have to remember or, you know, spend a lot of time writing things down. 
We have done that for you, and you're welcome to use our resources in any way you like. So what I'll do is I'll talk about a couple of them now. Um, one of these is new, uh, but the rest of them are, are old. So again, we, by old I mean they existed before 2016 when the, when the regulations were essentially rewritten. So here we have our fact sheet on dementia care and drugging standards, and they all follow the same format. In the purple, you know, we have numerically the different regulation, what the regulatory requirement is, and then underneath that, we have guidance which provides you with, with some description, uh, some excerpts that we think can be useful. And you can see in kind of the pink box, we have also some tips and some things to consider. Uh, and you can print these out. You can use them. You can, you know, bring them for trainings uh, with family councils, with ombudsmen, et cetera. But numbers, number one is the only one here that's new. So let me say that from 1987 on, or actually 1991, when the law came out in 87, and the federal regulations came out implementing the law in 1991. It has always been against the law to use physical, and here we're talking about chemical restraints, and it has always been against the law to give anyone a drug that they did not need for a specific clinical purpose. So that's always been the standard of care. So I'm going to skip over. So that's number two on the bottom of the first page, and number three on the top of the second page. So here it says at the bottom, each resident's drug regimen must be free from unnecessary drugs. Any unnecessary drug when used in excessive dosage for too long, without adequate monitoring, without adequate indications for its use, or in the presence of adverse consequences, which indicate that the dose should be reduced or discontinued. And then here on the upper right-hand side, they have especially for psychotropic drugs, which include antipsychotics, based on a comprehensive assessment of residents. Again, we're talking about comprehensive assessment. The facility must, not may, not can if it wants to, must ensure that residents who have not received, not used, excuse me, psychotropic drugs are not given these drugs unless the medication is necessary to treat a specific condition that's been diagnosed and documented in the clinical record. Residents, again, as I noted before, who use psychotropic drugs must receive gradual dose reduction and behavioral interventions unless clinically contraindicated in efforts to discontinue these drugs. So, again, this is how the law is focusing on the resident and providing care for the resident as an individual. We're basing this care in this case, treatment with drugs, on the resident assessment, which we spoke about before, all the things he or she needs and wants, his or her goals, etc. And then we're saying, unless the resident has a clinical diagnosis and the drugs are appropriate and are, are treated specifically that diagnosis, so if someone has schizophrenia and they are happier, and better and more able to function in a way that is positive for them with, with a psychotropic drug, including antipsychotics, that's fine. But in the absence of that, for someone who is in her 90s and has never had a psychotic condition, this is what we expect to see happening, is that there's gradual dose reduction, meaning that 
say someone had, you know, a typical example is someone, um, you know, maybe started scratching and got upset and was a danger to him or herself. So, of course, we want to calm them down. We want to alleviate the immediate circumstances. But as this notes, and we have a lot of materials, and there are other materials out there on this, some great programs um, for surveyors and nursing homes, et cetera, free programs, two things should happen, gradual dose reduction and behavioral intervention. So why did, how did that situation occur? Nursing home staff should be thinking about this. Okay, the resident got very upset. Was it because she was startled? Was it because she was bored? Um, maybe she has a urinary tract infection. You know, let's find out. That's what they are supposed to be doing. What what is going on? So let's 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 find out. Maybe she needs a antibiotic because she has a UTI. Maybe he gets upset because he is in a TV room that's very loud, and he finds the loud noises upsetting. So let's think about what makes him happy. What else can we try? This is really simple stuff. And it's just really a matter of treating the resident as a person and as an individual. And then as we're trying to, you know, as we're experimenting with different things, maybe giving him a snack in the afternoon or maybe giving him something, music would help him, you know, stop him from being bored or, you know, calm him down if he's upset. Maybe the music will do that then we don't want to take away these medications right away because that can result in problems as well for the individual. We want to do gradual dose reduction. Remember that a nursing home is, by definition, skilled nursing care. So we expect there to be oversight, medical oversight by a professional. We expect there to be RN supervision and evaluation every single day. And again, these are not things you have to remember. Just, you know, if you come back to our website, download these resources. We have resources, other materials outside as well for dementia care. Then it will give you, equip you with, you know, ways that you can talk about it. So if you are, if you have a resident and you find out that your resident is on an antipsychotic drug and she has never had a, uh, any kind of issue, you know, of schizophrenia or, uh, Huntington's disease, et cetera, then, um, you can say, well, you know, what is going on here? You can talk to, you can call for a care plan meeting. You can talk to the staff, and if that doesn't work, talk to the administration about your concerns. Ask them what medications your resident is on. And when I say, you know, just to be clear, when I talk about someone who has schizophrenia or, or Tourette's syndrome or Huntington's disease, which are those three conditions or, you know, um, for which CMS recognizes, uh, you know, there are other conditions as well. Someone might have um, medication for bipolar disorder. It should always be tailored to the needs of the resident. So even if that resident has one of those conditions, there's no reason not to ask. Residents should always be given drugs at, at a level that is appropriate for him or her to meet his or her specific clinical needs. And again, not me saying it, this is what nursing homes agree to provide. The only thing I quickly wanted to mention here is the first one on the left-hand page, drug regimen review. Now, as I've noted a couple of times, those of you who may not have been in previous programs, the law was passed in 87. Regulations came out in 1991. In 1984-5, to CMS, um, the federal agency, they rewrote, essentially, 
the regulations. So the standards remain the same. As you can see, I talk about psychotropic drugging, free from unnecessary drugs, informed consent, all the things we talked about before, they have always existed. What CMS did, though, is they added a couple of things in terms of the regulation and the guidance to better effectuate them for our residents. Again, you know, the whole point of this program was how do we connect between the law and what's going on for residents. And that's, I think, what CMS tried to do when it rewrote some of these regulations. So the standards did not change, but some of our expectations to realize those standards for our residents did change. And so number one is, I think, a good example, uh, drug regimen review. So now, this is new, the drug regimen of each resident must be reviewed at least once a month by a licensed pharmacist. The review must include a review of the resident's medical chart. The pharmacist must report any irregularities to the attending physician and the facility's medical director and director of nursing, and these reports must be acted upon. So that gives you some, you know, also, so, you know, if I had a, a resident, say, say I was an ombudsman helping a family member or a family member, uh, you know, I could say, well, you know, what, when was the last time my resident's drug regimen was reviewed. This law has been in place now since 2007, the, this regulation, I should say, should say, excuse me, since November 2017. Has there been a regimen review? Um, what drugs are my resident, is my resident on? And what, what clinical indication, and what, what clinical condition, I should say, are those drugs meant to treat? And is it the lowest dosage? And, I know that people have used these materials to advocate for their residents, and they've used these materials to raise awareness with, um, you know, with their ombudsman, uh, for the ombudsman programs, and with resident and family counsel. So, uh, please, you know, I, I think that these can be really helpful. That's really what we want to do. And again, use them in any way you want. You could take out our name and you could put in your own organization's name. That's, that's honestly fine with me. We really want you to have these resources and be able to use the knowledge as effectively as possible. So again, and this is just a repeat of the slide I had before, but I want you to think, you know, to just remind everyone of what can you do? You can know your rights. So if you have a question, something comes up about um, you're trying to form a family council and the facility is giving you a hard time, look up family council on nursinghome411.org and you can see that we have fact sheets on that. And actually, as I said before, we have an issue alert on it. We're, at, we're as um, many of you know, we're putting together more materials right now for family councils and ombudsmen and others who are working with families. So we're, we'll let you all know about that. Uh, we have the primer. So again, you can download that or you can find it on our website anytime. And you could use that to, you know, just push around, look around. You don't have to read it. It's about, I think, 40 or 50 pages. But you can look, you could do a search, and you could easily find some of the standards that might be important to you. And again, how do you, you know, here, how to use the knowledge? Use it in the facility. I think most care staff, they really want to provide good care. They may not know. They may not be aware. So you can raise awareness. And I think, you know, explaining to people, as I said, that nursing home resident said to me last year, um, help me to achieve the care that I need. Help me to achieve the goals to which I'm entitled um, to work for. And then again, outside of the facility, it could be used with the Amazon program, it could be used with the state survey agency, 
I know that a lot of people have, have problems. Sometimes they'll go to the, they'll file a complaint with the state and the state doesn't respond. This can help you because it will let you know that you are basing your concerns or basing your complaints on a problem or on a standard that exists, on something that you have a right to or that your resident has a right to. Uh, I'm going to go quickly. Actually, it's 158, so I'm going to stop. I mean, these are some of the things that we'll talk about more in the future. We've done programs on dignity, um, having an activity program that meets individual needs, promoting and enhancing residents' quality of life. I, if we had more time, I wanted to get some more ideas. But really what I want to do is, um, you know, you can let us know, uh, info at ltccc.org. I'm very fortunate to be in touch with a number of family members and a number of ombudsmen and, and other attorneys and advocates. So we really appreciate hearing from you. And if there are issues that are of concern to you, we can feature them in, in the program and we could talk about them. Our next program is November 20th at 1 p.m., making your voice heard in the nursing home and beyond. So we'll talk a little bit more about how to do that. And I want to thank you all for joining us. As I always know, for people who are in New York, for the long-term care ombudsman in New York State, we've arranged with the uh, many of the ombudsman programs will give you a credit for an in-service training for attending this program. It's www.surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash ltccc dash ltcop1. It's on the bottom left-hand side of the screen. And for family members in New York, there's the Alliance of New York Family Councils. Uh, www.anyfc.org on the bottom right-hand side. So I'm going to open it up for any questions. And thank you all for joining us. I really appreciate it. I hope it was helpful. I would definitely appreciate comments, info at ltccc.org. And have a good afternoon. I'm going to open it up right now. Hello, my name is Marin Hart. And my husband, Al Hart, we're from Des Moines, Iowa. Our um, facility is at Westway Acres, and we tried to get in, and we have the phone going, and we followed you on the computer, but I wanted to make sure that we would get our credit for hearing this. And then I do have a question that I still am concerned about is how do we know you know, the drugs are on, and how do we go about that? There's a few times that we have been involved in situations dealing with drugs, but most of the time it's because a family member has brought it to our attention. But on a regular basis, we have no idea what drugs our patients have. So do you, do you work for a nursing home, or are you a family member or an ombudsman? Uh, I'm an ombudsman, my husband and I. We're oh, a volunteer. Good. We're not paid. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So just to be clear, um, the uh, for the credit, it's really only. I mean, good. your your Amazon program in your state may. Uh, we welcome that. Uh, you know, provide credit for attending the program. We've only arranged with with those in New York. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so if you wanted to talk to your supervisor, you wanted to have him or contact me, we could be we'd be happy to do that. Um, okay. In regard to your question. There, we, there's a, we have a list of, of antipsychotic drugs on our website, so um, you can download the list or you can just search for one uh, on the internet, and so you, it, it gives you a list of what the drugs are, both the brand name and the, um, 
uh, and the generic thing. And that's what I know has been helpful for people. And it's not my list. It's one that I actually just copied and download, downloaded. But that is helpful in, you know, because people will get a, a list of what drugs their resident is on, and they can compare that against the list to see whether they're on antipsychotic. Yep. And people I know have okay. used that, family members have used that, to say, oh, you know, why, why is my resident on Haldol, um, you know, what can we do? State regulations. Um, there wouldn't be any... Um, any um, um, any uh, does that answer your question? Taking it's the same language as the federal regulations. Uh, someone speaking like we, one or the other. Richard, it's yeah. Sarah. There's Richard. Yeah. It's Sarah. There's been a request that you mute the everything and then have people unmute themselves either on the computer or on their phone. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So everyone, I'm going to mute everyone. In order to unmute yourself, you need to press star six. Uh, I apologize for that. Um, Barn second. Is that what the... Oh, okay. So I'm going to respond. We had a couple of questions online, and then you can press star six. Oh, this was uh, please remind everyone to mute their own phones. Yes, I'll do that. So so I've, I've muted everyone. Uh, if you want to stay on a little bit after two, then we can um, just press star six and be unmuted. But first, let me answer. Adam Chandler asked, does the federal government do any enforcement of its regulations? For example, at the Beach Street facility in Ithaca, New York, management over and over fails to post an accurate staffing count, a violation of 42 CFR 43.35. New, New York DOH shrugs and does nothing. Is there a CMS number we can call? Yes, there is. So that's a good question. I mean, the reason why we're here, the reason why the Ombudsman program exists is because, unfortunately, uh, un enforcement tends to be very, very weak against nursing homes. So, as I said earlier, some nursing homes do a fabulous job, and, and they support their caregivers, at, and they are providing very resident-centered care. Unfortunately, too many of our nursing homes don't, and there is often little to no repercussions whatsoever for providing poor or substandard care or even situations that are uh, abusive. Uh, so enforcement is uh, tends to be, unfortunately, you know, not that great. And that's something that we focus on. We do a lot of work on and advocate on. And what we when we hear from you all, that helps because we're a small group. We can't take individual, uh, you know, we, we don't take on individual cases. But when we hear from people, it makes a difference. It helps in our advocacy, and it has resulted in change. And actually, uh, in response to Adam's question, I would say this is one area that has resulted in change, is that what Adam is mentioning is that every nursing home now for many years has been required to post the number of staff it has on duty in the nursing home in a public area. And some nursing homes, just like with everything else, they do this, they, they do it accurately, and some nursing homes do not. I am not aware of any nursing home ever being um, penalized, at least not to my knowledge, for not providing good information here. But we recognize this, we and other advocates, and we worked together in um, like 2008-9 to, uh, to ensure that in the Affordable Care Act, there is a requirement that nursing homes have to report to the federal government, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, 
they have to report their staffing based upon actual payroll records. And we could talk about staffing in a program. I think it might be worthwhile. We put out those staffing data. They're published for um, every day of a, of a quarter on a quarterly basis by CMS. The most recent data, I think, are the second quarter of 2018. If you go to our website, again, nursinghome411.org, and you click on the uh, nursing home information and staffing, we post that information for every single nursing on the average for the most recent quarter uh, in state files that, that are easily sortable. We have some, I think, some useful information to talk about that, and we can talk about that more. Some of that information is brand new. They just started um, in September. They just published for the first time information on non-care staff, including um, the medical uh, director, including the administration, and social staff, social work staff, et cetera. So there's some new data there we'll be working on in terms of our advocacy, but also can be useful to you, and we do include them. And, yes, there are CMS numbers that you can call, and I strongly encourage it. So the uh, we post it on our website, the CMS regional office numbers, and you could call them. And if you have a concern that your state agency is not doing a good job, uh, you're not getting the answers that you need, then you can certainly call them because I think that they uh, don't, frankly, don't hear enough about problems that residents and families and, and ombudsmen and others who work with, with residents are finding in their nursing homes. Are there any other questions? If you have a question, please press star six, unmute yourself. Okay. Uh, I'm going to end the recording now and end the conference. I really appreciate everyone joining us today. Thank you. We're going to post these, uh, the webinar recording in the next couple of days. The presentation materials are already available on our website, as are the fact sheets that we talked about today. Uh, again, please don't hesitate. Really interested in hearing from you. Info at ltccc.org with questions and comments or suggestions for future programs. Thank you. Bye-bye now.